episode number 13. Wow. Lucky number 13. Here we go. So today I want to talk about um, a scientific myth. I want to talk about PFAS chemicals. Now, chances are you've heard of PFAS chemicals, right? Uh, you know, depending upon who you talk to, which regulatory agency you want to listen to, you know, these PFAS chemicals, they, they, they basically are, are chemicals that have carbons and fluorines. Now, and, and these fluorines are specifically attached to carbons. Now, the carbon it, fluorine bond is really, really, really strong, like amazingly strong. It's hard to break, which is why PFAS chemicals are great for certain things like making your carpet waterproof, like uh, preventing stains from attaching to your clothes or to your car's interior. Uh, I don't know about you, but if you've ever had a situation where maybe somebody, oh, I don't know, maybe your your small child left a crayon in the back of the car in the dead of summer when it got over 100 degrees in the car. And then you end up with this huge, ugly pool of, of melted wax, but the wax didn't get into your interior. You're able to lift it off. You probably have PFAS chemicals to thank for that. And, you know, if you love nonstick pans, chances are if it, if it was made with Teflon, guess what? PFAS chemicals helped you with that too. Amazing chemistry that you get from these carbon fluorine bonds. Just, just an absolutely amazing chemistry. But when I say PFAS today, like if I were to go into a grocery store, which I don't recommend doing this, but if you were to go into a grocery store and you're going to say, hey, How about them PFAS chemicals? People are not going to be too pleased with you. This isn't something that people like to talk about. It's not like their favorite chemical. It's not like, you know, people think water's completely innocuous, right? But oh my gosh, you said PFAS. How dare you, right? You get this really visceral response because people are afraid. They are deathly afraid of PFAS chemicals. Let's talk about that. Is that, is that a good thing? No, no, it's not a good thing. I'm here to tell you, PFAS chemicals, you know, again, depending on who you're talking to, you know, we're talking five to 10,000 chemicals. That's a lot of different chemicals. And these chemicals come in lots of different molecular shapes. Now, one of the things that, you know, drives a lot of how chemicals do their thing in your body is dependent upon that shape that the molecule takes and whether or not it can fit in certain places. And then are the atoms aligned in just the right way to mimic something else that the body ordinarily sees? That's how a lot of, a lot of things become toxic is because they fool the body into thinking that they're what normally goes here. And so therefore they will activate the receptor or they'll turn it off. That's how a lot of toxicology works. But the good news is, because of chemistry, our body's proteins are not so easily fooled. So if you have a chemical, let's say benzoapyrene, or not benzoapyrene, let's do uh, bisphenol A. So let's talk about BPA, bisphenol A. Right, so you got BPA, bisphenol A. It used to be on the inside of your cans. You know, you'd buy like soup. I like canned soup. Maybe you like canned soup. Franken beans, oh, those are good too, right? Man, I could go on for quite a while about my love of canned foods, but anyway, I, I won't do that. Um, so let's, let's, let's say like you, you bought this, this big can of soup 
uh, you know, and it has lots of yummy, good things in it. And you pour it out and the soup largely comes out and it doesn't stick to the can. Well, for a long time there, back in the old days, that was that was mostly due to the fact that you were dealing with uh, bisphenol A. And then what happened was some people thought that bisphenol A was extremely toxic to people. And so there were folks, there were people who would go around saying, well, my study says that bisphenol A activates the estrogen receptor. And because it activates the estrogen receptor, it acts like an estrogen and it can cause early puberty in small children. It can, you know, uh, fool the body into uh, messing up um, your hormonal cycles and all these different things. But what those people didn't tell you, the public, and what the press didn't tell you, the public, is that you need some really, really, really high levels of bisphenol A before you see any of these effects. And the effects that we're talking about here, you know, are not going to happen at concentrations that you and I are generally uh, exposed to. So if you're not exposed to it at a high enough level to cause these effects, then there is no risk. But wait a second. The press tells me that there is. It tells me that these things are horribly harmful. The problem is they're not getting the whole story. They're talking to particular groups of people who all have agreed on a very particular worldview. And that worldview is not necessarily consistent with the science. And, you know, they, they have a particular, you know, in many cases, these individuals do not like chemicals and they drive what we call chemophobia. So long story short, we have a lot of misinformation out there and we have it. Bisphenol is the example I just gave there. The example I'm going to give here, there's lots of them when we talk about PFAS chemicals. One of the biggest ones is forever chemicals. Every single time I seem to, you know, open up something, you know, like CNN, Fox News, um, Al Jazeera, uh, The Guardian, you name it. I don't care what the media source is. If they're talking about PFAS chemicals, the first thing they say is these chemicals, also known as forever chemicals, blah, 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 right? And cheapers, creepers. So let's talk about this forever chemical thing. Okay. We do not have a good handle on how long most of these chemicals last in our body. Do you know why? Just think for a second. This is like thousands of chemicals. It's because we never studied it. No one has studied it. We're talking about a huge class of chemicals, thousands of chemicals. Right now, I'm, I'm telling you right now, there's like over 80,000 chemicals that the that humans have introduced into the environment over time. That's not the amount of chemicals that are in commerce today. That's closer to 40,000. But we've introduced over 80,000 chemicals into the environment some way, somehow, some form. We have good tox information for maybe a thousand of those chemicals. Let me say that again. There's like 80,000 chemicals we know about. We have toxic toxicology information for about a thousand good toxicology information for about a thousand. Now we're talking about a chemical class called PFAS. That's like, you know, depending upon who you talk to, maybe 5,000 chemicals large. There is no way we know everything about all 5,000 of these chemicals. When we barely know anything about a thousand chemicals amongst everything that we've ever put into the environment. 
Think about that. So somebody is saying these, all these, all 5,000 of these PFAS chemicals are forever chemicals. Now just, just be the critical thinker and say, really? How, how did you come to this conclusion? How do you know this? Is it because all these chemicals look a lot the same? And so therefore they're going to have very similar effects. And and so you're extrapolating. Is that what you're doing? Because it's very hard to extrapolate, right? Things blow up when you extrapolate. We can't, we can't do that scientifically. We just don't do that. We don't extrapolate beyond our knowledge because at that point, guess what you're doing? Yeah, you're guessing, right? I just said, I gave away the answer. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. You're guessing, right? It's nothing better than a guess. We have no clue what all these 5,000 chemicals do. They come in different shapes. Some of the PFAS chemicals that we know the most about, by the way, there's only like two of those, PFOA and PFOS, they look like fatty acids. And when I say fatty acids, I mean, you know, when you're like eating a stick of butter, you know, you're just holding that stick of butter and you just gnaw on it for a little bit, right? And you're just chewing it. There's a lot of fatty acids in there, okay? That's what PFOA looks like, except instead of hydrogens surrounding these carbons, we now have fluorines surrounding the the carbons, all right? That's what makes it a PFAS chemical, because these fluorines. Well, like I said, some of them are like linear, like a fatty acid. It literally looks like a line. Actually, it looks like two lines, but that's beside the point. So some of them are like that. They're fatty acids. Some of them have right angles on them. Some of them are all twisty and weird shaped. Okay. They don't all do the same thing. And there's no reason to believe that they last forever. Not in your bodies, not in the environment. It is true. I will say this. It is true. It is true that it is hard to break a carbon fluorine bond, but it is not impossible to break a carbon fluorine bond. Bacteria exist that do this. So calling them a forever chemical, do they really last forever? Mm, Probably not. Probably not. All right. Do they last forever in your body? Probably not. So here's the thing. If the chemical goes down into the soil and never migrates to the drinking water or whatever, guess what? It's gone. Do we really care if it's still there forever? Not a lot because the bacteria will eventually evolve to use it as a food source because that's what bacteria do. It's kind of neat. I worked with this guy when I was at EPA, a brilliant scientist, and he did work looking for bacteria at contaminated sites that could break down nasty, nasty chemicals. And back in the 60s and the 70s, he was telling me, you know, people are like, nah, nothing can break this chemical. Nothing, nothing will ever break this chemical. This chemical is going to be there forever. And he was going and he was doing some tests and he's like, there's a lot less of this chemical here than there should be based on what I was told was released. What's going on? So he started isolating bacteria to figure out if there were bacteria that were breaking down these chemicals. And guess what? There were. Bacteria are amazing. Evolution is amazing. If you know, that that is one of the things that always um, gives me hope about us finding a solution to different environmental problems is that bacteria will figure it out. And then we learn from the bacteria. That's something we did when I was at the army all the time is we would learn from biology. We call it the bio inspired technology. And so 
We use that a lot for remediation. Sometimes plants will take it up and they can break it down, right? It's amazing what what life can do when it's faced with, you know, a, a problem or a challenge in the environment. So to say that they're all all not going to break down, that that's a bit of a misnomer. To say that forever chemicals last in your body forever, that is that is an outright lie. We know that's not true. We have studies. They aren't very good studies, but we have studies that show that in some people, PFOA leaves in less than a month. We have studies in other people that show it doesn't leave for about two years. Right. So there's this huge amount of variability and those studies aren't that great. We need more studies and people to say, you know, how long is this stuff actually lasting? That's what we really need. So we have this, we have some misinformation you know, with respect to the fact that they're not actually living, you know, in your body forever. That's not, that's not true. That's a myth. Right. And why is it that people are telling the public that, Oh, it's going to last in your body forever. And it's never going to go away. It's to scare you. It's to drive clicks. Somebody's making money off of this. Scientists make money. Well, toxicologists especially make money by scaring the public. That's just the fact of life. Because if I come back and I say, you know, hey, this chemical I've been studying for the past 10 years, really, it doesn't do nothing. It's, it's really innocuous. Am I going to get more grant money to fund my lab? No. Which is why academic scientists tend to use concentrations of chemicals that are much higher than human exposure levels because at human exposure levels, they'll never find a problem. But when you use these higher doses, then you find a problem and then you can publish about it. And then you can say you need to fund more of my work. Now, I'm not dissing a lot of my academic colleagues. I'm not because a lot of them are responsible scientists. And when you ask them, they'll say, oh, yeah, my work isn't human relevant from the standpoint of the doses I use. My work is human relevant because I am understanding how this chemical can actually cause different kinds of diseases in your body. And by me being able to study these diseases in the body, I get a better sense of how the disease actually works. And so I am actually contributing to science in that way. Because believe it or not, it is hard sometimes to get certain diseases to appear in animal models or in humans. And so what they'll do is they'll use in vitro models like cells and dishes, they'll use computational models, or they'll use animal models, and they'll use these higher doses to get the effect that they're seeing so that then they can study the disease. So it's not the fact that they are doing this at higher doses to scare you necessarily. A lot of my colleagues who are responsible toxicologists are using these doses that are not human relevant specifically to induce a disease that they then can study how that disease operates. That's why we do this because ultimately we might see this at a human relevant dose with a pharmaceutical, for instance. And if we've done this work with, let's say dioxin showing that this is what happens with high levels of dioxin in the liver. And then we see the same disease pop up when you're taking, uh, you know, uh, no fat at all. Uh, a new drug being developed by uh, some random drug company, and they see the same disease that we saw with dioxin. Now they're like, you know, with dioxin, this disease was uh, triggered through the AH receptor. So maybe no fat at all is triggering the AH receptor, and we just weren't aware of it. And then they'll go and they'll look and they'll say, oh, yes, it is, or oh, no, it isn't. Maybe it's something else, right? 
That's why this toxicology work at high doses becomes relevant is because it allows us to better study and understand diseases that we see with other drugs and other chemicals at human relevant doses. But the problem is when you start to have these, these scientists, these toxicologists who don't understand the concept of thresholds and they think that bad things happen at extremely low doses too, when they have no evidence for it, that's when we start to run into issues. Now, I wanted to speak specifically about PFAS, so I should probably stick to PFAS. All right. So with PFAS, we, we address the thing about the forever chemicals, right? They are not forever chemicals. They don't stay in your body forever. They don't stay in a large mouse mouth bass forever, for instance. You know, they, they will eventually go away. Now, if you're constantly being exposed to them, uh, you know, you, you will probably hit some steady state level. But just because it's in your body doesn't mean it's toxic, we have lots of things in our body that our body doesn't produce, but that don't cause disease. We have other things that we produce that people think are toxic. One of my favorites is formaldehyde. Did you know that your body makes formaldehyde? That is the random fact for today. If you go see somebody, you know, maybe you're going to the grocery store, maybe you're going to work, maybe you're going, uh, I don't know, maybe you're driving um, a garbage truck around. But when you go take your break, when you go talk to somebody, you know, just hop out and just say, hey, random factoid. Did you know that you're producing formaldehyde as we speak? You're also producing ethanol. You're producing all kinds of crazy things. Acetone. If you're a diabetic or if you're on a, a ketone diet, uh, you're producing all kinds of ketones, which uh, smell a lot like uh, acetone. Uh, you may even be producing acetone. Uh, it's kind of neat um, from a physiological standpoint, you know. Anyway. So with PFAS, we've got this, it's not a forever chemical thing, right? It's not going to last forever. But some of the other issues are, there's these studies that EPA has been citing uh, as the justification for their uh, water regulations. And these studies say, well, you know, um, it causes some uh, effects with the immune system in children. Okay, let's talk about that. So... Those studies were what we would say underpowered. So there weren't enough children in the studies to actually draw a conclusion. It's more likely that they got a false positive, which means that they're saying it's bad when it really isn't bad. Number two, the level of quote unquote immunosuppression. So uh, the, the level of uh, the immune system not responding appropriately to uh, the diphtheria vaccine, which is what they were talking about in these studies that EPA cites is actually not a clinically relevant decrease. In other words, um, this, this wouldn't actually cause an increase in diphtheria in the children at all. And we've understood the diphtheria vaccine for a very, very, very long time. So EPA is using this study to drive a very low level of um, PFAS contamination that is allowable in your water. And this level that they're saying is allowable is based on a flawed study, a flawed study that doesn't actually demonstrate an adverse effect. Now, I'm no attorney, but I used to work at the agency. And I know that the law states that the administrator can only regulate on an adverse effect. That's not an adverse effect. 
Now, EPA has tried to argue around this to say, well, you're right. It's not an adverse effect, but we still think that this is immunosuppression. And so because it's happening in children, uh, we think this is a big deal. Okay. I'm all for protecting children. I really am. I have two kids of my own. I want to protect them. But what I will not stand for is bad science being used as a justification for a regulation. And that's what we have here. Now, if the agency just wanted to say, you know what, it's our policy preference that we push the PFAS level down as far as we can, because that's what we feel is, you know, politically right. That's fine. Just come out and say it. Don't, don't, don't use the science and abuse it in such a way to justify what you want to do. I mean, EPA has done this for years. EPA, when it was under you know the Obama administration, Lisa Jackson was the administrator. I remember quite vividly, thank you very much, when our assistant administrator for ORD, uh, Paul Anastas, came down and talked to my group at, e- at EPA here in, uh, in North Carolina and explained to us why the White House was forcing Administrator Jackson to not do what the science said and lower the ozone standard and make it more stringent. And why the White House said that, you know, yeah, we understand that the science says it needs to be more stringent, but we are making a political decision because at the end of the day, and this is exactly what we are told, you need to remember that regulatory decisions are political decisions and the science only informs the political decision. That is exactly what we were told. And that was the same thing EPA staffers were told under the Reagan administration when they did the same exact thing. So this transcends political parties. At the end of the day, what everyone needs to remember is regulations are politics. Science informs the politics. That's it. Don't, you don't need to twist the science or to find a really lousy study, a horrible study, and say, yeah, this supports our decision that we're going, no, 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 no. You don't need to do that. You just say, I'm making a political decision, and this is what it is, and that's final. Great. Because the, the, under the law, the administrator does have a lot more leeway. And there are ways that they can add uncertainty factors and other things to get something down to where they want it. You know, don't, don't choose a horrible study as your starting point just to make it easier to get there. That's, that's not okay. Anyway, so that, that's another myth. You know, there, there's a ton of science here, and it's all horrible, all horrible. I worked as part of an uh, international collaboration on PFOA, and we're going to look at PFOS next. And my team of international scientists we all evaluated all of the PFOA science and oh my gosh, it took us forever. But let me tell you the conclusion we came to. We agreed with the World Health Organization. We did. We said the WHO was right. All the science here is awful. Awful. There are no good studies on PFOA and PFOS. They're all extremely flawed and they're all horrible. The human studies are awful. The monkey studies, oh my goodness, don't get me started on the monkey studies. That, that that was just an unethical waste of animals. Those studies were so horrible. The animal studies are horrible across the board. None of the science that we could use to establish a safe dose for PFOA was good science. It was all horrible, horrible science. There are analytical issues. 
There are issues with study design. The way it was analyzed was wrong. All this stuff. It's all horrible. But at the end of the day, we, there are three teams, the three teams, we got together and we came up with a dose range for what we thought was a safe exposure level for PFOA. And we're submitting that paper tomorrow, actually. Or on Wednesday. So today is Monday. So it's, it's going to be a couple days from now. We're going to submit it. But here's the thing. End of the day. This is what I want you to know. We need to be questioning things. We need to put our critical thinking hat on. And when somebody speaks in absolutes, this is, this is, a, this is something I learned in philosophy class. I was paying attention. When we hear people speak in absolutes, that is a really good sign that what they're saying is probably going to be false. Note how I avoided the absolute there. I didn't say everything. I didn't say all absolutes are false because, you know, that in in itself is false. But it's a very good indication that it's probably going to be false. And it's something that we really need to push back hard on. And say, show me the evidence. So if you're going to tell me that all PFAS chemicals are forever chemicals and they last in my body forever, show me the evidence for that. Because that's a lot of PFAS chemicals. That is a lot of PFAS chemicals. And when somebody says, well, you know, we need to make this extremely stringent uh, criteria and, um, you know, we're going to regulate this thing down really, really tiny you know, to the point where it's barely even detectable by today's equipment. Originally, they set it at where it was not detectable by today's equipment. Then they moved it up for the um, for the cleanup uh, level or for the maximum contaminant level, I should say. Sorry, MCL. When they when they do something like that, again, you need to push back and say, how good is this science that you're relying on actually? Are there problems with this? Has anyone found problems with this? And believe me, people have found a lot of problems with the uh, Grand Jean studies. Um, that's the name of the study that uh, was looking at the diphtheria levels and the immunotox things. Some of the other immunotox studies, including ones uh, done by EPA, there are major flaws with those. Some of the reproductive toxicology studies done by EPA, major problems with those as well. So across the board, that whole entire database of studies is just flawed. So we, again, we need to be questioning. It's okay to question. It is not okay to create conspiracy theories, but it is always okay to question. Remember that. It is always okay to question. It's okay to question experts. Here's the thing. If you question an expert and they get all huffy with you, that's usually a good sign that they don't know what in the world they're talking about or they don't have evidence for it. More likely, they're giving you BS, right? So if somebody comes up to me and they question me, you know, as long as it's a reasonable question, that's, that's kind of my thing. It has to be a reasonable question. You know, you can't ask me something completely unreasonable, but if I make a claim, yes, you have every right to ask me to see the science. And you know what, if I want you to believe me, I'm going to do my best to make sure that you see it and that you can make your own informed decision. And maybe we'll disagree. It's okay. Scientists disagree all the time. Oh my gosh. Do we ever disagree? Scientists are like a huge dysfunctional family. But when we agree, you probably, you know, should start looking for others to see, okay, so where, where, where is this agreement end, right? Probe that a little bit more. Um, anyway, I think I've droned on long enough. So I didn't go into all the possible myths. There are lots of myths, but I wanted to hit the top ones about PFAS. These are really, really important. And when somebody says to you, you know what, these chemicals are forever chemicals, you say, Really? 
How do you know? Did somebody study all 5,000 or even 7,000 of these chemicals? How do you know? How did you come to this conclusion? Oh, you're, you heard it from someone. Well, who did you hear it from? Oh, you heard it from the news. Okay, and were, did they quote somebody who had evidence for all of these chemicals, or were they just talking about PFO? Oh, that was the last thing I wanted to say. Gosh, I can't believe I, I missed this. When they're talking about all the horrible things PFAS chemicals do, guess what? Guess what? They're talking about PFO and PFOS, two chemicals. Those are the two most well-studied chemicals. Yeah, right? They're not talking about all 5,000 chemicals because we haven't studied them. They're only talking about those two chemicals mostly. There's a couple other chemicals that have been studied as well, but not, not nearly as well as PFO and PFOS. And again, the studies for PFO and PFOS are garbage. So, and you know, you don't just take it from me. There's lots of scientists that tell you the same thing. So anyway, I think that's where we're going to leave it here for today. Thanks for listening to the uh, Critical Science Podcast. I'm Dr. Lyle Bergoon. Uh, like, subscribe, uh, do all those things. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, uh, t- tell your uh, postal carriers, your garbage uh, collectors, uh, your car detailer, person that mows your lawn. Um, man, I don't have any of those things. Well, I, I guess we got garbage collectors and postal carriers here, but I don't have anybody who cuts my lawn. I do that myself. And oh my gosh, I might, you know, I'm, I'm being exposed to so many chemicals. Oh no. Yeah, I'm being facetious. It's okay. I'll be fine. I spread my own chemicals. I'll be okay. Anyway, have a great day. Thank you.